0: Okay. All right. We'll get, we'll get going. Let's begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Lord, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for everything that we've been able to do over the course of these sessions, all the good conversations we've been able to have, and all the thoughts that we've been able to think. We just give you thanks for sending your Holy Spirit into our hearts um, and to inspire us and to guide us to bring us to eternal life. We just ask that you hold us close and that you help us to know what, uh, what your will is for us in each and every moment. Help us, Lord God, to be all that you have created us to be. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so this one honestly might be a little shorter. I don't know. This is one of our lesser scripted sessions, so we'll we'll see where it goes. Uh, But today we're talking about um, something that I think is underrated even in a lot of Catholic circles. I think most theologians are exposed to this idea and are familiar with it, but I rarely hear it discussed at least explicitly almost anywhere else outside of like really specific theology books or you know formal theology classes and things like that. Um, The sort of tagline for this session is a quote from Athanasius of Alexandria. I'm not sure if he's the first person to say it, but he's the person that as far as I could tell, is like the original kind of source for this, where he says that the Son of Man became, or excuse me, the Son of God became man so that man might become God. Um, And that phrase sounds really extreme, but that actually is like a weirdly true thing in at least Catholic theology as well as Orthodox theology. I'm not sure how our Protestant brothers and sisters feel about it. Um, And it's alluded to a lot, this idea of man becoming God, a lot in the scriptures and in uh, some of the more I guess you could say often repeated teachings of the church but again it's rarely fleshed out and I feel like people don't often talk about all that's really entailed with it so that's what we're gonna try to do tonight we're gonna be talking about what it means for man to become God in what sense does Athanasius actually mean this Um, and when I learned this in college this might have been even halfway through my undergraduate theology studies where it was another one of those moments of like, why am I just hearing about this now? This feels like such a big deal that I'm like surprised and I'm only just now being told about it. At any rate, um, so Athanasius is talking about something that in the Eastern churches, they usually refer to as theosis, using the Greek word for it. In the West, I hear it mostly described with the terms deification or divinization or something like that. Um, And the conversation about man becoming God, so to speak, is, I'll say flat out, isn't entirely literal. Uh, It's not that man literally becomes God, but it's a lot closer to being literal than most people think. Um, This is actually something we've talked about kind of before. We've, again, sort of hinted at it uh, in previous sessions, not necessarily this summer as much, but definitely last summer. And we're going to start by just talking about grace and then we'll kind of move forward because theosis or divinization is sort of the perfection of grace um, and it's sort of the, uh, it's kind of like where grace is supposed to be leading us, so to speak. Okay, so first of all, what is grace? Uh, Grace is, I think, also kind of misunderstood because I think a lot of times people conflate a lot of different types of grace uh, because we talk about grace as sort of the free gift of God, which is certainly true. Um, but the gift of God is, has, can be interpreted in two ways. One, it's like something that God gives, which is accurate, but it, it could mean a gift that God gives, and it could also be interpreted as like the gift is God himself. Um, and again, both of those are actually accurate, because when we talk about grace, we're actually referring to God sort of giving himself to humanity. Uh, And that could be interpreted in a variety of ways. There are some kinds of graces that are sometimes referred to as like material graces, I think, which is like, you know, when God does something nice for you, right? Sometimes people talk about, you know, oh, you know, so-and-so has been such a blessing, such a a grace for our community when they arrived and started doing, or, you know, Father so-and-so, you know, what a grace it is that he's the pastor of our parish or something like that, right? And that's fine. Um, I usually don't refer to those things as grace just because, again, I think it's easy to conflate a lot of different kinds of grace and it ends up kind of muddying the waters about when I'm talking about like the really big grace stuff. So for the point for the purposes of our conversation going forward, grace is going to refer to either sanctifying grace or sometimes called habitual grace or something that's called actual grace. And there's other names for that as well. But those are the names that the catechism gives us sanctifying grace and actual grace. Sanctifying grace is exactly what it says on the tin. It's the gift of God that sanctifies us, that makes us holy, that makes us like God. And the way that that works is that sanctifying grace is the presence of God in the soul. Um, It's this idea that a person has genuinely received God in a meaningful way. Not just that like God has done something nice for them, although that's true, but that they sort of Have God dwelling within them Again we've talked about the idea of Being a sort of temple of the Holy Spirit That in the Old Testament the temple was like The place where God was And so when we refer to grace In the New Covenant that's kind of the idea Here that sanctifying grace refers to this State or the presence Of the Holy Spirit like genuinely Within the soul So that's all fine and good Actual grace is a little different um, And Every time some theology teacher talks about actual grace, they always make some joke about how like, well, that doesn't mean that sanctifying grace isn't real because it's opposed to actual grace uh, because actual grace here doesn't mean like actual versus potential. It actually refers to like action, like doing things. So it's the difference between... So like sanctifying grace is a grace of state or status, if you will, whereas actual grace is grace referring to actions of some kind actual grace is this thing by which god sort of it's not that he makes us do something but that something we are doing is more specially caused by god than usual i suppose you could say some people refer to um prevenient grace i think is a type of actual grace prevenient grace is like the grace that sort of motivates a person to join the new covenant to become baptized because sanctifying grace doesn't happen until baptism. So like when you're baptized, original sin is, is dealt with and the soul receives God in that sanctifying way for the first time. Whereas actual grace, I think, can be given kind of whenever and to whomever as God sees fit, or at least technically sanctifying grace could as well. But That's besides the point. So actual grace is not a persistent presence of God. That's sanctifying grace. Part of the reason it's called habitual grace sometimes is that sanctifying grace refers to, like, the abiding presence of God in the soul. Whereas actual grace is like when God makes a specific kind of moment-to-moment action through the soul, sort of. So those are the two kinds of grace that we're going to be talking about, um, just to kind of get our terms on the table. Now, we receive grace, as I mentioned earlier, through baptism originally— I want to read a passage from John chapter 15 that I think illustrates this a little bit more clearly. Um, this is during the Last Supper. Jesus and the Twelve are gathered together, and he says, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine grower. He takes away every branch in me that does not bear fruit, and everyone that does, he prunes so that it bears more fruit. You are already pruned, you, the Twelve, he means, because of the word that I spoke to you. And this is, this is where I think we get a really good picture of grace. Jesus continues by saying, Remain in me as I remain in you. Just as a branch cannot bear fruit on its own unless it remains on the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit, because without me you can do nothing. The parable goes on, um, but this is actually the parable that I use to describe grace to my students for the first time. And we kind of take a look at an actual, like, Grapevine and everything, and we take a look at, like, oh, here's like the branch or the, or the trunk or whatever, and here are kind of the bits that sort of um, split off of it and that kind of thing. The idea here is that the vines, that's us, only receive life through the branch. It's through the branch that they receive the nutrients from the soil and the water and all that kind of stuff. So the vines only do the thing that they can do because they are attached to the branch. So when we're baptized, we don't start attached to christ if you will um if we were to take this analogy really far we would say that baptism kind of grafts us onto christ that beforehand we were these sort of lifeless vines but when you are grafted onto christ through baptism that life that you know nutrition that hydration sort of flows into the vine since it's now attached to the branch so when we're baptized we're sort of spiritually united to christ in a really profound way so much so that people talk about us being like a new creation so the water and the nutrients in this analogy is sort of grace if you will this is the life of god sort of flowing into those who are attached to him this is the life of the trinity being sort of distributed into anyone and anything that is attached to the branch christ Um, if you were to think about this in a Trinitarian sense, it's as though, like, we sort of participate in the life of the Trinity because we're attached to Christ. That's uh, a huge deal um, in in Catholicism, right? I hope this is something that we're all familiar with at this point, and I imagine so, at least to a certain degree. So when the branches, or excuse me, when the vines bear fruit, when they, in in this case, bearing fruit is like good actions, you know what I mean? Um, Faith, charity, all that good stuff it's because the branch is supplying them what they need to make that happen. So actual grace is when, because of God being present in the soul, he's able to give us the sort of spiritual wherewithal, the spiritual nutrition, the spiritual hydration, to be able to do things that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise. This is where we become capable of new things. In the parable Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. I mean, he doesn't mean like, literally nothing but he means like nothing of value basically like there there's no good fruit being born outside of one's union with christ so these good works that were made to do right vines are supposed to bear fruit that's like part of their design the good works that we're supposed to do are some of them very familiar to us but some of them are very unfamiliar to us So this is where we start getting into a conversation about different kinds of virtue, believe it or not. So virtue is sort of like a stable habit of doing good things. It's when you're like good at being good, so to speak. If you are a virtuous person, like if you have the virtue of temperance, that means that it's easy and joyful and quick for you to do temperate things. If you are courageous, you possess the virtue of courage or bravery, you are just really good at doing courageous things. That's kind of the idea there. But there are two different kinds of virtues that we typically distinguish. One are referred to as the human virtues, or sometimes they're called the cardinal human virtues. And the other are referred to as the theological virtues. I'm going to give you some different names for them that are going to be relevant to our conversation on theosis. The human virtues are called human virtues because they're present in human nature. And so sometimes they're referred to as natural virtues, whereas the theological virtues, again, are very God-focused. That's why they're called theological. But they're sometimes called infused virtues. So the natural virtues are present within human nature kind of implicitly by themselves. A human, even a human not in a state of grace, could actually possess human virtue. You could still be courageous. You could still be temperate. You could still be just. You could still be prudent even if you weren't baptized. That's like a totally normal thing that can happen. Those kinds of virtues are the kinds of virtues that if you practice them, you basically grow them. The more you do those good, temperate, courageous things, the more courageous you become, the more prudent you become, the more just you become, et cetera, et cetera. The infused virtues or the theological virtues, on the other hand, are not natural to humans, uh, or at least they're not part of human nature. Previously, we've mentioned that humans are kind of like a cup that we're sort of made to receive something else. And that's like part of like our entire design. So humans are made for infused virtue. We're made for theological virtue, but we don't possess it on our own. We need something from outside of us. That something we need from outside of us is grace. We need God himself present within us, dwelling within our souls to enable infused virtue. It's literally something that is superhuman. So when we talk about the virtue of faith, we actually are referring to something that is impossible for humans to have on their own. When we talk about the theological virtue of hope with a capital H, we don't just mean looking forward to something in the future. We're referring to like a certain kind of action that is genuinely not possible for humans without grace. Same thing of charity. There is such a thing as, you know, sometimes called human love or natural love or something like that. But the virtue of charity, properly speaking, loving as God loves, because God loves, how God loves, is something that God basically has to give us. Uh, The virtue of charity is not when we're just like, you know, really, really loving, but rather when we actually kind of borrow God's love, if you will, and then love with that. Or maybe it's more accurate to say that God loves through us so when we talk about a person's nature um, your nature kind of defines what you do at least according to the to the classics so a dog's nature right specifies everything that a dog can do any any potential action for a dog is implicit within its nature or even explicit within its nature so too for humans when we receive grace part of the reason we're able to do new things is because Infused virtue is no longer using natural human abilities. It's actually like employing the strength of the divine nature itself. So it's almost as though like God is acting through us or like we are using literally like the power of God <laughs> to, to do those good things. And those are the things that we're made to do. Um, we're like we genuinely like cannot live a complete life without Literally using the power of God to, to do things, you know what I mean? Now, it's not just that grace enables the infused virtues or infuses those virtues into us. Um, it also sort of amplifies the natural virtues as well. So a person with grace um, is not only able to be just on a human level, but is also able to kind of like really push justice to its, its maximum, you know what I mean? Because again, that sort of strength of God, that power of God, just gives it extra oomph if you will i'll give you the example of ooh, let's i'll give you maybe two analogies to think about this and they're very similar so one of them is let's say um, a dad is teaching his kid to golf okay and especially let's say that the dad is teaching the kid how to do a drive right so they've got the the driver club and all that kind of stuff and they're you know getting poised and ready and all that kind of thing Um, Infused virtue or theological virtue or the things that we do when we literally like have to rely on the power of God to do them It's sort of like when The parent sort of legitimately like has their hands on the kids hands and like walks them through the whole swing You know what I mean? And not only like shows them how to do the swing, but maybe even like actually does the drive with them most of the time um, if you're talking about really really little kids the parent is going to be just physically stronger than they are, right? And so sometimes, in order to able, in order to be able to actually hit the ball hard enough that it actually gets to where it's it needs to go for the game of golf, that kid actually needs not just the their adult to like show them how to do it, but they legitimately need to rely on like the raw muscle power of their parents to even be able to like make that shot. That's kind of what infused virtue is. That's kind of what faith is, hope is, charity is. It's us legitimately like having God present within us, dwelling within our souls, and therefore we're able to kind of just use his, if you will, raw moral power to be able to to do good actions. Um, and the same thing would be true of the human virtues as well. It's like these are things that we are capable of on our own, but the fact that we have God behind us and like giving us his strength in that movement, in that action, makes it all the more effective. Second analogy is the analogy of like, we'll say like a, a knife of some kind, maybe like a carving knife or something like that. On its own, it can do certain things that a knife is supposed to do. If I were to hold a knife up and drop it and it hit the table on the way down, it would probably make a mark, right? It would probably cut into it a little bit, bite into it a little bit, what have you. That's something the knife can do on its own through its own nature. Like, that's just what a knife is based on how it's shaped, based on how much it weighs. That's the kind of thing you would expect a knife to do. Whereas theological virtue would be more like when an artist actually picks up the knife and then actually uses it to carve something. Like, the knife can't do that on its own. Now, it uses its nature to do that, right? Like, it still needs to be a good, sharp knife to be able to do what it's supposed to do in that situation. But when it's actually being held, when it's being wielded by the artist, if you will, like that's what it's truly made for, even though it can't do that by itself. And it's not just the power, like the muscle power that the knife has when it's carving that way, but also like sort of the the dexterity with which the knife is cutting is enabled by the hand of the artist. Now notice, we would say both that the knife is doing the cutting But we would also say that the artist is doing the cutting as well. So too with our good actions, so too with our holiness, so too with our sanctity. It's true to say both that I am doing this and to say that God is doing this. So this is where we start to get to the idea that man is almost becoming god when we talk about like real sainthood, real sanctity. So this is why it's sometimes referred to as divinization or deification or theosis in the East, is because the idea that as a person becomes even holier, they become sort of better at this sort of working with God and God working through them, as their will becomes more conformed to his, as their hearts um, metaphorically expand to receive more of God's grace or to utilize grace to its fullest extent, they almost sort of become metaphorically synonymous with God that the things that they choose are the things that God chooses the things that they do are the things that God does and they are radiant with the power of God with the that force of God that strength of God so that the things that they do it's almost as though it is like God himself doing those things directly right this is part of why the Saints in Heaven um, sometimes it's said that if you were to encounter them In like just face-to-face in all of their true holiness, it would be like easy to mistake them for God because they are so conformed to God, they are so full of God's life, full of grace, that to look upon them is almost to look upon God. To see what they do is to sort of see what God is doing. Saints, when they're alive on earth, in a certain sense, kind of are the presence of God on earth there's almost a sense in which saints living and moving and doing their thing and following their vocation and all that are like how god works in the world so a saint in heaven who has attained this state of glory who has received the crown who has received the beatific vision who is more intimately united to the trinity than we i think realize is even possible there is a sense in which like yeah they have almost become god at that point so full is that union so full is that connection so complete is that grafting onto the branch of christ that again they're almost a part of god it's almost as though they've sort of joined the trinity if you will that's kind of the idea of theosis and again it's one of those things where it's like i wish somebody had told me that that was kind of the end goal sooner because i think it makes it much more obvious when we talk about what heaven is and why heaven is good and why a person should care about being a saint, it's because, like, this is, again, kind of what we were made for. And also, it just sounds cool. Like, it just just sounds amazing that, like, we genuinely are going beyond our understanding of humanity at this point. That to live a good holy life means to be, like, a close participant in something literally superhuman, literally above human nature to do. And, like, that's how we should think of hopefully ourselves like when we receive the sacraments when we are inspired by the Holy Spirit to do good works and we rely on the grace of God to animate us It w- hopefully we do think of that as like oh I am participating in the work of God you know what I mean I'm like the the carving knife in his hand or the kid who's swinging the, the golf club right just with his strength right um, now obviously this is limited only by our own disposition, basically. Um, most of us here on Earth, most of the time, probably aren't doing this super fully, um, not because there's anything that God is withholding from us, but more that like we are not, if you will, allowing God's power, will, presence to like actually run its course in us and through us and in our lives and all that kind of stuff. Um, But man, it's cool. It's it's cool to think like, oh yeah, so there are these powers I have based on my nature. But since I get a share in the divine nature, as the catechism puts it, that means that like an entire suite of like new abilities have been unlocked for me. You know what I mean? Um, Which I just think is really cool. I just think is really cool. That's kind of the basic idea behind theosis. Again, the idea is that the son of God became man so that man might become god the catechism lists this idea of theosis as giving us that share in the divine nature you know pouring himself into our souls that legitimately like unlocks superpowers for us that's part of why jesus becomes a human in the first place Um, that's not like a remote um, consequence that is one of like the, the legit like the main reasons jesus becomes a human at all is so like we is so he can kind of be that branch that the rest of us are sort of compatible with, if you will, that we can be actually grafted upon to so that life, that hydration, nutrition of God's life flows into us. And that's what the beatific vision is. Like, it's not just that, like, oh, we see God face to face. It's almost like, no, you're, like, wrapped within the heart of God. That's the beatific vision. But, but... But again, that's that's kind of it. Like I said, this was sort of a shorter one um, because I feel like this is like a really specific idea, but I just wish we talked about it more. And it's daunting, I'll grant you that. Like it can sound a little weird to be like, oh wait, so I become God, I guess? And like, yeah, honestly, kind of. And this is kind of something I mentioned last summer. I think a lot of people are intimidated by that because it sounds like you're sort of losing your individuality or you're kind of surrendering control of your life or surrendering your free will and things like that Um, and I understand that I understand that hesitation I experience that hesitation on occasion Um, more so than more so than not probably realistically but ultimately I think that since it is something that we were designed for, again, like the way that a cup is designed for water, it's made for this thing that's outside of itself. I think ultimately we only will really find our fulfillment, our completion by kind of leaning into this, so to speak. Um, last year, I mentioned that we're oftentimes worried about you know, losing some part of what makes us, us. Um, but I think the reality is that the only things that we stand to lose are the things that weren't worth keeping. Like, because the only things you would actually lose in this process of divinization, in this process of theosis, would be, you know, whatever is keeping you from that full union with God, which is, like, again, like, not the things that you should care about retaining. Um, And it might also be easier to think of it as though people are worried that they're going to lose themselves in God when they become a saint. I think the reality is that they find themselves in God when they become a saint. That's the idea. It's the full realization of what we are, and apparently what that is is ultimately something beyond human.